The next on the list is the Feast of First Fruits, and we'll begin with Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, beginning at verse 9. I know Leviticus is one of those books that we often find very scary as believers. We kind of avoid it, like Ezekiel and um, perhaps some of the other weightier portions of the scriptures. But there's some lovely things, and it's good that we have this one chapter in Leviticus that we're looking at even as a group. Might, maybe it might encourage us as individuals to look into the entire book and to see what God has for us in it. Leviticus 23, verse 9. And Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land that I give unto you, and ye reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and ye shall wave, he shall wave the sheaf before Jehovah to be accepted for you. On the next day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf a he lamb without blemish, a yearling, for a burnt offering to Jehovah, and the oblation thereof, two tenths of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering by fire to Jehovah for a sweet odor, and the drink offering thereof of wine, fourth part of a hin. And ye shall not eat bread or roast corn or green ears until the same day that ye have brought the offering of your God. It is an everlasting statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. The first fruits. Very simply put, this pictures for us the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ in resurrection. There's something unique about this particular feast. Firstly, it's stated, the first thing, actually the first thing that's said about it is, when you come into the land that I give you. That's when it was to be kept. Now it's obvious they couldn't, Keep a, they couldn't have a harvest out in the wilderness, out in the desert. In the first place, there's nothing to harvest. And in the second place, they usually didn't stay in one place long enough to plant something and get a harvest. If they could have irrigated and got something out of it. So this is a feast that is celebrated in the land when they came into the land. For us, that would, coming into the land really um, pictures when we're with Christ in glory. And what does this mean? First fruits. How, how, how is this significant for us? It's a, a, a difficult thing to discern because, you know, when we're with Christ in glory, and this is um, kind of a commemoration of his resurrection, we'll have him with us. We, we won't need a, a commemoration or a, a feast. But there's some, some lovely things that we can see about this um, in some of the details that are presented to us. Um, firstly, it says, after it says, when you come into the land, it says, there, there speaks of a harvest. Um, it says, you reap and you reap the harvest thereof. There's a harvest that has been reaped, the harvest of the first fruits. And what does that represent? Doesn't that really represent the believers gathered with Christ in the land, in heaven, in the Father's home, brought into the Father's house? First fruits. There's going to be more, of course, you know, we have, and we'll look at that as we get into the, um, the later feasts, um, tabernacles and so on, and there's a, more than just First fruits. 
But here we have first fruits brought in. The first, um, first blessings as a result of Christ's resurrection. There's also a, perhaps a, a thought that comes from Matthew's gospel in that way it says, but that, that really doesn't have anything to do with more, that has more related to the death of Christ, but there were those that rose when Christ died. So they didn't come out of their graves till after his resurrection. But some have thought that, that that perhaps represents the first fruits, but we can, we can see here, this is talking about being gathered in the land. And they were certainly not in the land, were they? And the first fruits is the third feast, if you consider Passover a feast. The third of the series of, of feasts that took place, it's actually in the first month. We have the Passover, or Days of Unleavened Bread, you can consider them kind of, they were, the Passover and the first day of Unleavened Bread were the same day, actually. And it, sa it says here, the um, we get to, I've lost it now. Next day after the Sabbath, verse 11. There was a Sabbath that took place in this week of unleavened bread, where it fell, whether it fell in the middle of the week, the beginning of the week, or toward the end of the week. It fell somewhere in there. And I guess it would vary from year to year, like our own, somewhat like our own holidays. They may not fall necessarily on the same day every year, except as President Nixon years ago decided that every holiday should be on celebrated on a Monday or most every holiday. But, I mean, quite even our own New Year's Day doesn't fall on the same day of the week each year, does it? So there would be a Sabbath involved in this. And the first fruits would be, would be brought in and waved before the Lord the day after the Sabbath. What day is that? What do we call that in New Testament language today? The Lord's Day. The day that's characteristic, and really when we call it the Lord's Day, that's what it means. It describes the character, or should describe the character of the day. That it belongs to the Lord. And it belongs to the Lord, why? Because that's the day that he rose from the grave, victorious over death. And God raised him again for our justification. And there's a... Um, Abraham, I guess, was who said it prophetically when he appeared before God. He said, Behold, I and the children whom thou hast given me. This is kind of what the Lord is doing with the Feast of First Fruits. We remember in the Gospels that the Lord was speaking and he said, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, what happens? It brings forth much fruit. And so we have pictured in this grain. We have the corn of wheat that has fallen into the ground. Christ has died. The Passover has passed. But we have a sheaf, a bunch. It's not specified how many in this bunch. And I think that's wonderful to, to know that God, God in his thoughts always has abundance in mind. He doesn't have... Scarcity. He doesn't say bring one stock. 
and wave it. One stock, well, you got a, a grain of corn and, or wheat or whatever it might be, and it brings up a stock. How many is going to be on one stock? A dozen or so? We got a sheaf. Something that, oh yeah, it's numerable, but I think the indication is that it's without number, really. There is no, no definite number given. It is an abundance. And Christ, risen from the dead, has brought forth abundant fruit for God. This is, and it's really the first, it's called first fruits. Not the entire harvest. It's not everything. It's only an indicator of what is to come. The amount that is to come. And so you can imagine, if you will, the, the, the harvest that's beginning, and I, I guess this would be barley harvest, whether it was, I, I kind of doubt whether it was fully uh, ripened barley. I think it was probably still green because the harvest was just beginning, I suppose. And they would take some of these in, in green grains, gather a bunch of them, and give it to the priest who would wave it before the Lord, wave it before Jehovah. Here's Christ as the priest, you might say, waving the fruits of his victory before the Lord. See how I have glorified you. See how I have honored you in doing the work that you have given me to do. This is just a sample of what is to come. Traveling salesmen years ago, they used to have traveling salesmen. People would go from door to door. You, you might hear some of the old-time jokes. They talk about the fuller brush man. Um, occasionally, you still get a call at your door from somebody trying to sell you a Hoover vacuum cleaner and all the accessories that go along with it for thousands of dollars. Well, who buys a vacuum for thousands of dollars? I don't know. Anyway, traveling salesmen, they used to give out samples. The Fuller Brush Man, they call him Fuller Brush because the company was named Fuller, and they made brushes of all kinds. And they come around, they give you a little sample brush of something for whatever it was, a, a scrub brush for your laundry or a fingernail brush or something, I don't know. They give you a little sample. This is what our, what our product is like. And here's Christ. Waving before Jehovah. This is what it's like. It's like this. This abundance. This big bunch of grain. Just wait till the full harvest comes. What joy this gives to God. Christ in resurrection. Bringing forth fruit. How wonderful. There are some offerings that are connected with this feast of first fruits with this offering of this sheaf and I'm not going to say that I have any kind of um, definitive indication I don't know that's not the right word I don't have any sort of definitive proposition for you as to what these mean I'm going to offer you some suggestions and you can look into this and investigate it yourself but there is It says, um, the day that you offer the sheaf, there is a he lamb without blemish, a yearling for a burnt offering to the Lord. The he lamb, the male lamb, 
a yearling. We have Christ in his harmlessness, if you will. The lamb is a, it's a harmless animal. Really, the lamb is an enemy of no other animal, is it? It doesn't prey on other animals. It's not a predator. And so we have Christ in his simplicity and his harmlessness. A yearling lamb, his youth, his vigor. And it is a burnt offering. It is entirely for Jehovah, entirely for the Lord. Christ in his simplicity, in his youthfulness and vigor, entirely for God. His life was lived entirely to the glory of God. He, he did not move except God, his Father, told him to do so. We have that many times throughout the Gospels that he would not act independently of his Father. How lovely that is, a, a beautiful picture. Then we have, it says, the, the lamb, there was an oblation. I'm not sure what that word means. I think it means kind of a voluntary offering or something in addition to it. There were Grain offering is what the word oblation means? Okay. And that's what it exactly is. Two-tenths of fine flour mingled with oil. Fine flour, grain, ground up so that it's very fine. You can see it in all of its detail. And then when we talk about the offerings of the Lord, there is a meal offering, what's called a meal offering or a meat offering, depending on your translation, or a flour offering. It represents the Lord Jesus in all of the details of his life, down to the very smallest, smallest detail. Perfect. No blemish, no fault. Again, no leaven. Is offered without leaven. Every detail of Christ's life, and it's mingled with oil. Oil in the, in the scriptures often speaks of the Holy Spirit. Every detail of Christ's life, perfect and lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and in fellowship, you might say, with the Holy Spirit. Energized by the Spirit of God. Perfect. And then there was a drink offering. Fourth part of a hen. I'm not sure exactly how much that is in today's measurements. But we have the drink offering itself was wine. And wine in scripture often is used for joy. What a joy this would be to Jehovah to see. We, we have, um, I think it's speaking of the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 53 when it says, He shall see of the fruit of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. But doesn't Jehovah get much more joy out of that as well? When he sees, this is what my son has done to bring me glory. How it must give him joy to see this way, this chief of first fruits, the joy that the that, that Jehovah has over this. This is all indicative. It's an indication. Again, it's a sample of what's to come. But it's glory for God, a people one for God. 
and we get to be Christ's bride. That's a kind of a side issue out of the whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> we look at that as a primary function, but or a primary thought, but really, Christ has won us for God. And the joy that it brings to Jehovah. How wonderful. How lovely. The priest, the next day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, to be reminded of the resurrection in so many ways. Not just by the day of the week, but by the sheaves of grain. Something had to die to bring these sheaves forth, right? And it's passed before the Lord to remind him of what Christ has done. The joy that it brings God. Isn't that what it's all about? We often, you know, we, we're so stuck on looking at things from our side of things, from our point of view. How does it affect me? What does it do for me? What do I get out of it? Well, it's not what I get out of it. It's what God gets out of it. The glory of God. For the glory of God. And then the last, verse 14, I thought that was kind of strange. You know, as you look at that, he says, you don't eat, you're not supposed to eat bread or roast corn or green ears until the same day that you have brought the offering of your God. What? Why not? Well, there's a thought, I think, that since this represents somewhat uh, Christ offering himself and being resurrected, isn't there um, a thought that, although we don't often consider it this way, we should really consider it this way more often than we do, but that the Lord did what he did, firstly, for the glory of God. Not even for himself. Yes, he was going to get something out of it. Hebrews, I think it's chapter 12, was it? Says that who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Yes, that was before him. And we often concentrate on that. Oh, we're the joy. We're Are we the joy? The joy that he gives to the Father, I think is perhaps what it's maybe referring to. Possibly. But... The Lord did what he did primarily for God's glory, for the glory of Jehovah, for the glory of his Father. Secondarily, we are his bride. That's kind of, I don't like to, you know, put first and seconds in there. It's kind of difficult when you start. I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to, diminish the place that we have or anything like that. But when it comes to our our point of view, we are to give God to God first. As he says here, we offer to God our offering, then we can enjoy the blessings. So often we want to enjoy the blessings first and then give God something back. Kind of like what Jacob said, of all that you give me, I will surely give back to you the tenth. We think that's what that, that that's what God wants. God says, first, give me your heart. 
we give to God first, then we can enjoy what he gives to us. What a one-sided bunch of people that we are in that we want to enjoy all of the blessings of God first, and then, if it's convenient, I'll give him something. If I have some time, maybe I can give him an hour on Sunday morning. That's if I have time. I've got other things to do, you know. But, oh, God, by the way, don't don't stop your blessings. Don't cut those off. How often are we like that? Yet here, there's no bread to be eaten, no roast corn or green ears, until the offering has been offered. Let's give to God first. He wants the best. This is what the first fruits really show the best. It's a, a precursor of what's to come. It's an indicator of what is to come. But it's the best in quality, isn't it? And that's what he wants from us. The best. Christ gave the best to Jehovah. Should we give any less? I'll add a couple things to what Glenn said and uh, then moderate the discussion afterwards. Glenn mentioned the, uh, the wonderful work that the Lord Jesus did. His perfection in his life is represented by the, the meal offering or the oblation of fine flour and uh, brings to mind a verse in Hebrews that he was heard for the sake of his piety. The Lord Jesus, uh, in his life before his God and Father, as man on earth, lived in such a way as to be that perfect meal offering which brought delight to the Father's heart and so was heard in his pleadings uh, by the Father. And this uh, <clears throat> reminds us, I think, of the, I don't want to jump on somebody else's uh, presentation, but in the Day of Atonement, as the priests went into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, they wore a plain linen garment and as we know linen is the uh, picture of personal righteousness it's uh, in contrast to the animal slain which covered Adam and Eve it is the manufacture of human work and comes from the ground and so is the personal represents to us the personal holiness of the Lord <coughs> as the priest offering himself an offering to God. And so I think that is uh, pictured for us as well in this picture of the meal offering. I think uh, as an aside, uh, we have often heard the expression uh, that something is hid in plain view. And I couldn't help but think of that and looking over some of these things that we've been looking at. We uh, talk about the meanings of these symbols, but we sometimes forget that they're symbols. We're 
occupied with what they represent and we forget how scripture presents some of these things to us. You know, I'm always fascinated not only by what scripture tells us, but how it tells us these things. And the scripture that comes before my mind in this regard is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, does not nature itself teach you? This is a question. And I think very often in scripture or anywhere where we find a question like that that has an obvious answer, it's put that way for emphasis. It's as if, don't you know? And we find the Lord using this kind of technique in the Gospels as well. But we should recognize, I think, in the things around us, parables of divine truth. Scripture frequently uses nature to teach us, and that's really what's being done here. That's a fascinating thing to me, but I want to go on. If we go back to another verse, which Glenn didn't refer to, Leviticus 2. There's another um, discussion, a briefer discussion of the first fruits, but uh, some things are added. In verse uh, 14, Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, If thou present an oblation of thy first fruits to Jehovah, thou shalt present as the oblation of thy first fruits green ears of corn roasted with fire, corn beaten out of full ears. Now, perhaps we've heard that in Scripture uh, when the term corn is used, it's really referring to wheat, um, and that has its own special significance. But I think in this case we can think of it as corn also. Uh, our common thought here in this country is that corn uh, you know, grows 10, 12 feet tall and has big ears and we can boil it and, and eat of it. But the key thing here is two, two things here. One is that the corn ears or the ears of corn are specifically mentioned as green. And as Glenn mentioned, this is, makes sense because this was the beginning of the harvest. But it reminds me also of a verse that we have in the Gospels, that the Lord himself is a green tree. And what's that symbolized to us? Um, we're right now in the dead of winter and everything out, the, out of the window there looks kind of barren and brown. But in a few months, what's going to happen? It's going to turn green. And so the green represents the vitality of life. And as Glenn also mentioned, the Lord Jesus was cut down in his vitality of life in the very beginning. So this reminds us of the energy and the vitality of the Lord's testimony. The other thing that's mentioned here that wasn't mentioned in the other one is that the corn was beaten out of full ears. So more than just the 
representation of resurrection, there is the thought of what that resurrection produces. Here the corn is beaten out. And I think we have the answer to that when we look at John 12, 24. Verily, verily, I say to you, except a grain of wheat falling into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bears much fruit. Now, what's interesting, well, there are many things that are interesting about this verse, I'm sure. But in uh, what Glenn was saying, we don't focus on our blessing so much as what Christ has done and the glory he brought to the Father. But there's a flip side to that. What is one of the glories of the Lord? Well, is it is that he has brought many sons to glory. And in the terms of this verse, he bears fruit. He's the fruit bearer. If, if it had not, if the corn of wheat had not gone into the ground and die, what would have happened? It would have been alone. But if it goes into the ground and dies, then there's the potential for much fruit. And we can be assured from God that there will be abundance of fruit. As Glenn has mentioned, as the fruit being waved before the God, before God uh, reminds us. I just want to say one uh, more, make one more brief comment, and that takes us to John 20, which is where I went a moment ago. We might ask the question, what is that fruit going to be like? And I think it's a question which um, can be answered in a multitude of ways. It would take hours, I'm sure, to go through all of the aspects of that fruit. But here is a verse that's rather, very striking, I think, because it's the first, it's one of the instances that we see uh, the Lord among his disciples after his resurrection. When therefore it was evening on that day, which was the first day of the week, the doors shut where the disciples were through fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and says to them, Peace be to you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and his disciples rejoiced, therefore, having seen the Lord. In another place, the disciples, upon seeing him, were afraid, it says. And he says, um, as a spirit, they thought he was a spirit. They didn't know what to think. Because they had seen him die, and all of a sudden, here he was standing before them. And he said, a spirit hath not flesh and bone, as you see me have. So, the Lord is not any longer a spirit. Excuse me, that's wrong. I said that not wrong. I said that incorrectly. He is not merely, he's not only a spirit. He has become into, he has come into manhood and being raised from the dead, he is now head of a new race. And that's the point I wanted to make. So we follow in his footsteps by God's grace in that way. When resurrection occurs for us, 
we will then be like him and be with him. When God first set about to create man, to have fellowship with him, he created him body, soul, and spirit, as we know. That's a complete man. Back in eternity, God had perfect fellowship. Among among the Godhead, there was the Father, the Eternal Son, the Eternal Spirit, and there was fellowship. But God wanted fellows beside that. He wanted to broaden that fellowship. How could he do that? Well, there had to be a means by which the eternal son could become man. That's an amazing thing. And I don't, we certainly can't comprehend that. So coming into manhood, being born of the Virgin Mary, dwelling among us, he became man. What an astonishing fact, just to meditate on that. God so created human beings that the eternal son could become man. That's the first miracle. But then he was willing to come into manhood. And then he was willing really to put an end by death to that whole race. Adam's race is terminated in God's sight at the cross. And there is a new race. There's a new, we might say, humanity based on a new head, a head that cannot fail. That's a wondrous thing. You know, people may propose, well, how come, how come we can go to heaven and then there not be sin there? Well, everything that sin connects to is in this life. It's in this world. And it's coming to an end. It's going to be destroyed as Peter tells us, completely. And there will be a new creation. Paul tells us that if any man be in Christ, it is new creation. It's already begun. Spiritually, we are a new creation in Christ. That's completed when we follow Christ in resurrection. So he is really, in a multitude of ways, the first fruit of God's plan his eternal plan, which ends uh, with the, we, our Bibles end in the last couple chapters with a description. Difficult, perhaps to comprehend, but certainly worthwhile to think about.